no bread in the house of bread, crumbs in the carpet and empty shelves. The priority of God's presence has been lost in the modern church. We're like bakeries that are open but have no bread. And furthermore, we're not interested in selling bread. We just like the chit-chat that goes on around cold ovens and empty shelves. In fact, I wonder, do we even know whether he's here or not? And if he is here, what's he doing? Where is he going? Or are we too occupied with sweeping out imaginary crumbs from bakeries with no bread? On the day that Jesus made what we call his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the back of a little donkey, his path through the city probably led him right past the entrance to the temple of Herod. I believe the reason why the Pharisees were upset at the parade in John 12 is because it disturbed their religious services inside the temple. I could just hear them complaining. What is this all going on? You're disturbing the high priest. Don't you know what we're doing? We're having a very important prayer service inside. Do you know what we're praying for? We're praying for the Messiah to come. And you have the audacity to have this noisy parade and disturb us. Who's in charge of this unruly mob anyway? Uh, do you see the little guy on the donkey? was the reply from the crowd. They missed the hour of their visitation. He was in town and they didn't know it. The Messiah passed right by their door while they were inside praying for him to come. The problem was that he didn't come in the manner in which they had expected him to come. They didn't recognize him. Had Jesus come on the back of a prancing white stallion or in a royal chariot of gold with a phalanx of soldiers ahead of him, the Pharisees and the priests would have said, that might be him. Unfortunately, they were more interested in seeing the Messiah throw off the yoke of Roman bondage than in throwing off the spiritual bondage that had become a blight on their people and the land. God is getting ready to break out in America, even if he has to bypass her stuffy churches to break out in the bar rooms. We would be wise to remember that he's bypassed the religious elite before in order to dine with the poor, the profane, and the prostitutes. The Western Church, and the American Church in particular, has exported its programs about God all over the world. But it's time for us to learn that our programs are not progress. What we need is His presence. We need to decide that whatever it takes, and wherever it comes from, we must have Him. And He wants to come. On His terms, not ours. Until then, the absence of awesomeness will haunt the church. We can be inside praying for him to come while he passes by outside. Worse than that, the insiders miss him while the outsiders march with him. Bread is scarce in the times of famine. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chelon, Epaphrathites of Bethlehem, Judea. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left 
and her two sons. And they took of them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. Malan and Chelan died also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Ruth 1, verse 1 through 6. People leave the house of bread for one reason. Naomi and her husband and her two sons left home and moved to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. Consider for a moment the literal meaning of the Hebrew name of their hometown. Bethlehem means house of bread. The reason they left the house of bread is that there was no bread in the house. It's simple why people leave churches. There's no bread. Bread was part of the temple practices as well. It was proof of his presence, the showbread, the bread of the presence. Bread has always been the one thing historically that was an indicator of his presence. We find in the Old Testament that bread in the form of the showbread was in the holy place. It was called the bread of his presence, Numbers 4-7 in RSV. Showbread might be better interpreted as show-up bread, or in the Hebraic terms, face bread. It was a heavenly symbol of God himself. Naomi and her family have something in common with the people who leave or totally avoid our churches today. They left that place and went somewhere else to find bread. I can tell you why people are flocking to the bars, the clubs, and the psychics by the millions. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to survive because the church has failed them. They looked, or their parents and friends looked, and reported, and the spiritual cupboard was bare. There was no presence in the pantry, just empty shelves and offices full of recipes for bread, but the oven was cold and dusty. We have falsely advertised and hyped up our claims that there is bread in our house. But when the hungry come, all they can do is scrounge through the carpet for a few crumbs of yesteryear's revivals. We talk grandly about where he has been and what he has done, but we can say very little about what he is doing among us today. That isn't God's fault. It is ours. We have only remnants of what used to be, a residue of the fading glory. And unfortunately, we keep the veil of secrecy over that fact much in the same way Moses kept the veil over his face after the shine of glory dust faded. We camouflage our emptiness like the priesthood in Jesus' day kept the veil in place, but with no Ark of the Covenant behind it. God may well have to pierce the veil of our flesh to reveal ours, the church's, inner emptiness also. It's a pride problem. We point with pride to where he has been, thereby protecting the temple tradition, while we deny the obviously apparent glory of the resident Son of God. The religious spirits of Jesus' day didn't want the populace to realize that there was no glory behind their veil. 
Jesus' presence presented problems. Religious spirits must preserve where he's been at the expense of where he is. But a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with only an argument. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. John 9.25 If we can lead people into the manifest presence of God, all false theological houses of cards will tumble down. Yet we wonder why people hardly bow their heads when they come into our meetings and places of worship. Where has the fear of God gone, we cry like A.W. Tozer. People don't sense God's presence in our gatherings because it's just not there sufficiently enough to register on our gauges. This in turn creates another problem. When people get just a little touch of God, mixed up with a lot of something that is not God, it inoculates them against the real thing. Once they've been inoculated or vaccinated by a crumb of God's presence, then when we say, God is really here, they say, no, I've been there, done that, I bought that t-shirt, and I didn't find him. It really didn't work for me. The problem is that God was there all right, but not enough of him. I'm tired of thimble-full experiences of God. Somebody has to break open the well. There has to be an experience of meeting him at the Damascus Road. That's the problem with many of those who say, God is really not at church. There was no experience of meeting him at the Damascus Road. There was no undeniable, overwhelming sense of his manifest presence. People have come to the house of bread time and again, only to find there was simply too much of man and too little of God. The Almighty One is out to restore the sense of his awesome, manifest presence in our lives and places of worship. Over and over we talk about the glory of God covering the earth. But how is it going to flow through the streets of our cities if it can't even flow down the aisles of our churches? It's got to start somewhere, and it's not going to start out there. It must start in here. It must start at the temple, as Ezekiel wrote. I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple, Ezekiel 47.1. If God's glory can't flow through the aisles of the church because of seducing spirits and manipulating men, then God will have to turn somewhere else, as he did in the day Jesus rode past the house of bread, the temple, in Jerusalem on a donkey. If there is no bread in the house, then I don't blame the hungry for not going there. I wouldn't. When Bethlehem, the house of bread, is empty, people are forced to look elsewhere for the bread of life. The dilemma they face is that the world's alternatives can be deadly. As Naomi was to discover, Moab is a cruel place. Moab will steal your sons from you and bury them before their time. Moab will separate you from your spouse. Moab will rob the very vitality of life from you. In the end, all that Naomi had left were two daughters-in-law whom she had only known ten years with nothing but a gloomy and disastrous future staring her in the face, she told them, You might as well not hang around me either. I don't have any more sons to give you. But then she said, I heard a rumor. Hear me, friend. There is an information grapevine 
that winds its way through every community, hamlet, and city of the world. It winds its way all down our coast and over every mountain range and into every place where men and women dwell. It is the grapevine of the hungry. If just one of them hears the rumor that there is bread back in the house of bread, the news will flow like a surge of electricity through a power line at near the speed of light. The news of bread will leapfrog from one household to the other, from one place to another, almost instantaneously. You won't have to worry about advertising on TV or promoting it in the usual ways of the world. The hungry will just hear. The news will break. No, it's not a fake. It's hard to believe. But this time, it's not hype or manipulation. No, it's not just a trickle. It's not just crumbs in the carpet. There really is bread back in the house of bread. God is in the church. When that happens, we won't be able to hold them in our buildings, no matter how many services we conduct each day. Why? How? All you must do is get the bread back. There is much more of God available than we have ever known or imagined. But we have become so satisfied with where we are and what we have that we don't press in for God's best. Yes, God is moving among us and working in our lives, but we have been content to comb the carpet for crumbs as opposed to having the abundant loaves of hot bread that God has prepared for us in the ovens of heaven. He has prepared a great table of his presence in this day, and he's calling to the church, come and dine. We ignore God's summons while carefully counting our stale crumbs of yesteryear's bread. Meanwhile, millions of people outside our church walls are starving for life. They are sick and overstuffed with our man-made programs for self-help and self-advancement. They're starving for Him, not stories about Him. They want the food, but all we have to give them is a tattered menu, vacuum-sealed in plastic, to protect the fading images of what once was from the grasping fingers of the desperately hungry. This is why we see highly educated men and women wearing crystals around their necks in hopes of getting in touch with something beyond themselves and their sad existence. Wealthy and poor alike flock to flashy seminars about enlightenment and inner peace, gullibly swallowing every bit of the unbelievable junk being passed off as the latest bright revelation from the other world. How can this be? It should convict and shame the church to see so many hurting and searching people turn to psychics, astrology, and spiritists for guidance and hope in their lives. People are so hungry that they are pouring millions of dollars into an overnight industry of the occult manned by fake soothsayers. Even the genuine mediums or channelers who tap into the dark world of the occult and satanic familiar spirits are rare among this bunch. They are so desperate for hope that they will accept canned script from paid marketers as spiritual insight. Oh, the depth of spiritual hunger in this world. There's only one reason why so many people are so willing to attempt to get in touch with something from the other side. Even accepting the counterfeit, they don't know where to find the real thing. The blame for that can only fall in one place. This hour seems to be custom-tailored 
for the church of his presence to prevail. Now I must repeat one of the shocking statements that I keep hearing God say in my spirit. There is as much of God in most bars as there is in most churches. It's no wonder that neither sinners nor saints feel the need to bow when they come into a worship service. They don't sense the presence of anything or anyone worthy of worship among us. On the other hand, if the church would become what it should and could become, then we'd have to scramble just to accommodate the demand for bread in the house. And when people would enter our houses of bread, no one would have to tell them to bow their heads in prayer. They would fall on their faces before our holy God without a single word being spoken. Even the heathen would instinctively know that God himself had entered the house. We would ask one another, who will man the phones tomorrow, knowing the lines would be jammed with people calling in to say, I've got to hear from God. Why do I say this? Because when people pay the exorbitant price to psychics, they are really trying to touch God and find relief from the pain in their lives. They just don't know where else to go. King Saul gives us the example of a desperate wanderer cut off from God. When he couldn't reach or catch God, he said, Then let me find a witch, anybody. I've got to have a word if I have to disguise myself and sneak in the back door. I must have access to the spirit realm. There is another problem God is concerned with, and Jesus revealed it when he rebuked the religious leaders of his day. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in man's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Matthew twenty-three thirteen. It is bad enough when you refuse to go in yourself, but God gets extra agitated when you stand at the door and refuse to let anybody else in either. Through our ignorance of spiritual matters and our lack of hunger, we have figuratively stood at the door by the way we have done things and have barred the lost and hungry from entering in. Our constant claims of hot bread backed only by stale crumbs on a frayed carpet of man's tradition have left countless generations hungry, homeless, and with nowhere else to go but Moab. And so they grow weary with the cruel taskmaster who takes his tax in their marriages, children, and lives. But now today, there's a faint rumor that there is bread in God's house once again. This generation, like Ruth, a picture of the unchurched, unsaved, is about to sidle up to Naomi, a picture of a prodigal, to say, if you heard there really is bread there, then I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. If there's really bread. So tattered was the reputation of Bethlehem, breadless Bethlehem, that Orpah didn't go. How many like her don't go because the history of hype from the church exhausts their energy. They can't make the trip. Do you know what will instantly integrate someone directly into the fabric of the local church? It will happen the moment they taste the bread of his presence in that place. And I'm not speaking about communion crackers. 
When Ruth heard that there was bread back in Bethlehem, she rose from her sorrow to go to the house of bread. What happened to the bread? The sign is still up. We still take people into our churches and show them the ovens where we used to bake bread. The ovens are all still in place and everything is there. But all you can find is crumbs from last year's visitation and from the last great wave of revival that our predecessors talked about. Now we are reduced to being shallow students of what we hope to experience someday. I personally am constantly reading about revival, and God impressed upon me recently, Son, you're reading about it because you don't yet have the experience to write about. I am tired of reading about God's visitation of yesteryear. I want God to break out somewhere in my lifetime so that in the future my children can say, I was there, I know, it's true. God has no grandchildren. Each generation must experience his presence. Recitation was never meant to take the place of visitation. He's done it before, he can do it again. Send the rain, Lord. We want God to change the world, but he cannot change the world until he can change us. In our present state, we are in no position to affect anything. But if we will submit to the master potter, he will make us, all of us, into what he needs us to be. He may remake the vessel of our flesh many times, but if we will submit to the potter's touch, he can turn us into vessels of honor, power, and life. After all, wasn't he the one who turned unlearned fishermen into world changers and hated tax collectors into fearless revivalists? If he did it once, he can do it again. I, I want to break the standard writing rules for Christian books right now, and I want to ask you to pray a prayer with me as you read the first page of this chapter. This book was written to help usher God's presence into your life and church family. It may sound silly, but I want you to put your hand on your heart and pray this prayer of the clay with me right now. Father, we thank you for your presence. Lord, the air is just pregnant with possibility, and we sense your nearness. But we must say that you are not near enough. Come, Holy Spirit. If not now, when? If not us, who? And if not here, where? Just tell us, Lord, and we'll go. We will pursue your presence because we want you, Lord. Your presence is what we're after, and nothing less will do. Something is happening in the body of Christ. More and more of us are unwilling to play the old religious games. Something like a warrior spirit is rising up within us an urge to conquer territory in the name of the Eternal One. I know that in my life I've received a mandate from the Lord to pour my life into key cities where I sense God intends to pour out His Spirit in the days ahead. I'm literally shopping for places where God is breaking out. I've already described how God broke out in the city of Houston, and I mention it simply because I was privileged to be present when God came on the scene. I've felt led to participate in continual meetings for more than a year in some places, and incredible things are happening. We still have a long way to go, but in each city 
we did something that has deep spiritual significance for this move of God. I want to see contagious outbreaks of God like was seen with Finney, Edwards, Roberts, and company, where whole regions are swept into the kingdom. I'm after cities. I'm not just interested in preaching in churches to Christian people. I'm after entire cities occupied by people who don't know Jesus. Once while preaching at a conference with Frank Damasio in Portland, Oregon, I heard him mention something that instantly captured my attention. He said that a number of pastors in the Portland area had united together to drive some stakes in the ground at strategic places around the perimeter of their region and the city and at every major intersection. The process took them hours because they also prayed over those stakes, and as they were physical symbols marking a spiritual declaration and demarcation line. I felt the stirring of the Holy Spirit, so I said, Frank, if you'll provide the stakes, then I will go to the cities I feel called to and help the pastors stake out that territory for God. Then I began to ask God in prayer, Lord, give me some precedent so I can understand what you're doing here, and then I'll know why you've pressed this into my heart. Ironically, this stirring of the Lord came upon me later in California, and I was reminded that California was the site of the great gold rush. Whenever would-be gold prospectors found a spot of ground where they thought there might be some gold, they would stake a claim. Some plots of property are just more valuable than others because of what is in the ground. If you wanted to claim a plot of ground in those days, then you would stake it by driving a stake into the earth. That stake would bear your name and a rough description of the area you were claiming. Later, the land would be formally surveyed, but until then, a claim stake was as good as a land deed in a court of law back in those days. If anybody disputed your claim, you could go to that undisturbed plot of ground and dig up your stake bearing your name and the rough dimensions of the claim and say, See, I've claimed it according to law. I'm in the process of possession and occupation. But this claim stake is proof that the land is already mine by law. Pastors and congregations who have put down roots in a city or a region have a legal right under God to claim their cities for the king by staking out the territory. In the past, too many of us have been content to keep our faith contained within the four walls of our meeting halls and church buildings. Now God is calling us to extend our faith beyond the boundaries of our cities and nation. In effect, we're literally expanding the walls of our spiritual churches when we stake out our cities. It forces us to see ourselves as the church in the city. One people, under God, comprised of many congregations, according to the first century pattern of the city church. We actually made wooden stakes with four sides bearing the words renewal, revival, reconciliation, along with supporting scriptures. A hole was drilled down the middle of the stake, and a rolled-up written proclamation was inserted in it. Altogether, there are about 20 Bible verses in the stakes and proclamation. But one of them is Isaiah 62, which says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world. Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. 
The written proclamation contained in every stake driven into the ground of these cities contains this declaration made by God's lawful representatives of that city. On the basis of Scripture, I stand for leaders of this city, and I stand as a representative for other city pastors who desire to do three things, repent, request, and resist. We repent. We ask the Lord to forgive us for the sins that have taken place in this state, in this region, and specifically this city. We ask for forgiveness of the sins of political corruption, racial prejudice, moral perversions, witchcraft, occult, and idolatry. We pray the blood of Jesus to cleanse our hands from the shedding of innocent blood. We ask forgiveness for divisions in the church, forgiveness for pride, forgiveness for the sins of the tongue, anything that has hurt the cause of Christ. We repent and we humble ourselves to ask for mercy to be poured out on our land, our community, and our churches. We request. We ask for God's kingdom to come and His will to be done in this city. We ask in the name of Jesus for an outpouring of grace and mercy and fire, for true spiritual revival to come and cover the community, causing a turning back to God, a cleansing and a brokenness and a humility. We ask for the destiny of this city not to be aborted. We ask that you visit this city and our churches and our homes. Do not pass this city by. We ask for a restoration of the foundations of righteousness to this city. O Lord, we also resist. On the basis of my submission to God, by faith, I resist the devil and his works, all forces and all powers of evil that have taken hold of the city. We resist the spirit of wickedness that has established strongholds in this city, the dark places, the hidden works of darkness, the mystery places where the enemy has set up encampments. We call on the name of the Lord to destroy all spiritual strongholds. We proclaim this day that this city especially this region, is now under the power and ownership of the Holy Spirit. All other spirits are hereby given notice and evicted from this property by the power of the name of Jesus. Today, we stand in the gap and build a hedge of protection around this city. Before you ever purchase property in the natural, you need to have it surveyed or staked, and you need to determine if you're willing to pay the price to possess the land. When we stake our cities as God's people, we are in effect declaring open war on Satan's kingdom. Our acts are bold acts of outright aggression without apology or hesitation. We're telling the devil, we have declared this before God, and now we're telling you, we will take the city. A word of the Lord that has come to me about old wells that applies directly to cities as well as to older mainline denomination and churches. God is going to redig or uncap the old wells first before the newer artesian wells break open. Genesis chapter 26 tells us that Isaac had his men redig the wells that his father Abraham had originally dug many years before in the valley of Gerar. Although his father's enemies had filled in the wells after Abraham's death, Isaac still called them by their original names. He found so much water there that he constantly battled with Philistine raiders and finally moved to Beersheba, or the Well of the Oath, as it was called. It was here that Jacob encountered the living God and discovered his true birthright in God's plan. In this day, God is uncapping some of the ancient wells of revival. 
There are places where his glory is like a standing pool of water. People have to come to the well to get satisfied, and that is by God's design. Before God brings forth the new wells, he will redig the old wells. In the year before I began working on this book, the Lord spoke to my spirit and said, I'm going to revisit the places of historical revival to give my people another chance. I will call them to dig out the debris from the old wells so that the starting of the new revival will be upon the foundations of the old revival. In simple terms, before the real revival breaks out in the malls, it will have to break out in our church altars, then the back pews. Then is when the glory of the Lord can flow underneath the threshold of the door and out into the streets in fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel 47, where it says, Afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand went forth eastward, he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Again he measured a thousand, and brought me through the waters. The waters were to the knees. Again he measured a thousand, and brought me through. The waters were to the loins. Afterward he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. And everything shall live whither the river cometh. And by the river, upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. And the fruit thereof shall be for the meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. Isn't it ironic that the river of God's presence flowing from his sanctuary actually grew deeper the further the prophet walked? Finally, Ezekiel ended up in water that was over his head, and he couldn't touch bottom. He was out of control. I am after an out-of-control revival. Its shallowest point should be at the church building. I believe that some cities are old wells of God's anointing, places of historical revival. God is calling pastors and congregations in those cities to redig those wells. Unfortunately, digging the debris out of an old well is not a pleasant task. When a pastor friend of mine bought some property in India, he was told that there was an old well on the property. It wasn't a common vertical well. It was slanted horizontally into the side of a mountain. As the ministry workers began to dig out the debris, they found old machinery, discarded furniture, and mounds of old trash among high stands of overgrown weeds and rushes. They found something else, too. They encountered hundreds of cobras in that abandoned well, and they had to be removed. My friend told me, 
We got that old well all cleaned out and went to bed. When we got up the next morning, we hoped and expected to find a pool of stagnant water waiting for us. But we discovered that the water in the well had begun to bubble up and was flowing so strongly again that it had created a stream overnight. The next wave will come as God uncaps the artesian wells of His glory. Many of the wells in the deserts of the Middle East are standing pool wells. There's enough water seeping up into the natural holding tank of the earth to keep it filled most of the time, even in the desert heat. Almost every living thing in the desert ecosystem makes its way to the oasis or standing pool well for the water of life. God has uncapped abundant standing pools of His presence that have brought life to millions of thirsty believers and unsaved people over the past few years, but they must travel to the well. There is forgotten power in pilgrimage. Now He is about to release the next stage or wave of His anointing, and it will be unlike the old standing pool wells in that these new wells will be artesian wells that will explode with great force. According to Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary, an artesian well is a well made by boring into the earth until water is reached, which from internal pressure flows up like a fountain, a deep bored well. This new wave or level of God's glory will come solely from the deep bored people of God's presence. It will explode into our world with such force that His life-giving presence will push beyond every barrier and obstacle to flow into the thirsty streets of our cities and nations. This is how His glory will cover the whole earth. Fountains of the deep will break open. You don't have to go to the waters of an artesian well. The water goes to you. Given the fact that water always seeks the lowest level and the path of least resistance— it is easy to see why Jesus, the brightness of the Father's glory, and the express image of His person, Hebrew 1.3, said that the poor have the gospel preached to them. God's glory always seeks to fill the void in men's lives. In the days to come, God's glory will emanate from the most confounding places and individuals. It will begin to flow and fill the lowest and most open of people. He alone will receive the glory. The Lord spoke to me clearly about His glory during a rare downpour in Southern California. I was born and raised in Louisiana where we're accustomed to seeing days of rain. There were many times when it would rain continuously for days and nights, and no one would think anything about it. But when it rains in Southern California, people take notice. On this particular day, something strange was going on. California was getting a Louisiana-style thunderstorm. It was almost a subtropical downpour. Back home, people prepare for rain because they are used to it. They build ditches, culverts, and storm sewers so they're ready for the rain when it comes. The Los Angeles area, however, is not accustomed to that much rain. I happened to be in a coffee shop when it began. After 20 minutes had passed, I realized it wasn't going to stop, so I went out to where I'd parked the car on the street. The water was flowing over the curb and was almost knee-high in the street. I had to wade through it just to get to my car before the water level rose any higher, in just twenty minutes. As I drove away, I said to myself, They sure don't build storm drains here or something. I don't know where the rain goes at home, but it never gets that deep in the streets that quick.
As I walked through the rain back to my hotel room, I sensed God's presence and just began to weep. As tears mingled with the rain, I sensed the Lord speak to my heart, just as they are unprepared for the rain in the natural, so are they unprepared for my rain in the Spirit, and I will come upon them suddenly. As I prepared for the meeting that night, I listened to the local news and heard the weatherman in Los Angeles say something that struck a prophetic nerve in me. He said, This is not the last storm. Actually, they are stacking up out in the Pacific like waves, one against another. Then he added, They're just going to keep coming. And he explained that the source of those waves of rain was El Nino. El Nino in Spanish means the babe and is used to refer to the babe of Bethlehem. The weatherman didn't realize that he was prophesying, but he was talking about the Christ child, the source of all the waves of glory about to sweep over this planet. In that moment, something rose up in me and said, Yes, Lord, just send wave after wave of your glory until it has literally flooded everything. May all that is not of you just be washed away downstream. Rain, Jesus, rain. Very often the law of precedent applies to parallel events in the natural and in the spiritual realms. I am so hungry for the unleashing of His glory that I can't express its intensity or urgency. So I pray, Lord, just let it rain. Satan is not going to have enough storm sewers to drain off the glory this time. It's going to rise so high that everybody's going to be floated off their feet and out of control in a mighty wave of the glory of God. Let it rain, Lord. Hear me, friend. Break open the fountains of the deep. Uncap the ancient wells. Reclaim your heritage. Stake the city. The earth is the Lord's. He's done it before. He can do it again. Send the rain, Lord. Time and again we ask one another, why can't I win my friends to the Lord? Why is it that my family members just don't seem interested in God? The answer may shock you in its bluntness, but the truth often hurts. The reason people who know you aren't interested in your God may be because you don't have enough of the presence of God in your life. There is something about God's presence that makes everything else crumble in comparison. Without it, you would be just as pale and lifeless as everybody else around you. No matter what you do, without His presence, you will be just another somebody to those around you. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of being just another somebody to the lost around me. I've made a decision. I made up my mind and set my heart to declare, I'm going to pursue the presence of God in my life. I'm going to get so close to God that when I walk into secular and public places, people will meet Him. They may not know that I'm there, but they will definitely know that He is there. I want to be so saturated with God's presence that when I take a seat on a plane, then everyone near me will suddenly feel uncomfortable if they're not right with God, even though I haven't said a word. I'm not wanting to condemn or convict them. I just want to carry the fragrance of my Father with me. We understand program evangelism, where we knock on doors or pass out tracts or some other program of the church designed to reach the lost. 
John Wimber helped us to understand power evangelism, where we mix anointing with the program. In this form of evangelism, we might pray for someone to be healed on the street instead of just witnessing or giving out tracts. But there is a little understood, much underused form of evangelism that I call presence evangelism. This is where people take notes saying they have been with Jesus. See Acts 4.13. This is where the residue of God on a person creates a divine radiation zone of the manifest presence of God, so much so that it affects those around you. Shadow healing would fall into this category. Only it wasn't Peter's shadow that healed anyone. It was the shadow of who Peter walked with that created a zone, a healing zone, or a demon-free zone, a divine radiation zone. The Hebrews believed that the anointing would extend as far as your shadow reached. I believe that the glory will extend as far as His shadow reaches. Cover the earth, Lord. The Gospel of Mark tells us that immediately after Jesus astounded his disciples by rebuking the sea and the wind during a great storm, they landed in the country of the Gadarenes. Something happened that day that I pray will happen in our day. When the sole of Jesus' foot touched the sandy shore of Gadara, one half mile distant, a man possessed of at least 5,000 demons suddenly was freed from their choking grasp for the first time. Why? How do you know? Mark tells us that when the demonized man saw Jesus, he ran to worship him. Up until that precise moment, the demons had told him where to go and what to do at every other instance. He had no control over his own actions, even when the demons commanded him to cut himself. So what changed all that? What happened in a moment that wrested the man's mind and physical functions out of the control of 5,000 controlling demon spirits? I'll tell you what happened. Father stepped back into the house. And that is exactly what we need today. We need to hear the footfall of God as the sole of his foot touches earth just one more time. When that happens, we won't have to worry about telling little demons to run. We won't even have to scream scriptures against their prince or practice pulling down demonic strongholds. The purpose of his manifest presence is to set the captive free, to fulfill Luke 4.18. He wants to finish what he was unable to start in Nazareth when he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Lord, we want to see you. We're tired of just talking about you like Sunday school children. When are you going to show up, Lord? I pray that an Isaiah chapter 6 visitation will come to churches in the cities because all it takes is one footstep of Almighty God in a city to break the chains of decades and centuries of demonic domination. I pray that we can say with the prophet Isaiah, I've seen the Lord. I'm praying for a corporate breakthrough in the church. But first I pray that God gives each of us an individual breakthrough in our lives. Lord, we are not coming just to get a blessing. We seek the blesser. We need a breakthrough. I must warn you that sometimes you will be broken to get a breakthrough. It's just the way it happens. I encourage you to linger and soak in the presence of the Lord at every opportunity. When you draw near to Him, don't hurry and don't rush. 
realize that this is, or should be, at the top of your priority list. Let God do a deep work in your heart and life. This is the way God creates a deep bored well in your life that will become an artesian well of power and glory in His presence. The purpose of His presence is to bring deliverance to the captives and victory to the children. For centuries we've been fighting spiritual battles with Satan and the bad kids from his neighborhood, using bold words and sometimes sticks and stones. But it is time for us to cry out to our Father and watch our neighborhood battles take a totally new turn. I tell you with every ounce of faith in my being that if the Father of us all can step down and allow his manifested presence to touch earth just once, if even one tiny tear from his eye can fall in a city like Los Angeles, New York, or Chicago, then the flood of glory it will spawn will bring revival throughout the land as demons flee and sinners fall to their knees. Jesus, help us. Come, Father. Abba, Father, Daddy, we need you. The bottom line is this. If you're really hungry to see Daddy come on the scene, then you have to understand that you must stop seeking his benefits and quit asking for him to do this and that. We have managed to turn what we erroneously call church into a big bless-me club where we sign up for this blessing and that blessing. I'm not so sure that we need to seek his blessings anymore. That's what the Israelites did in all the centuries they ran from the face of God. We need to seek brokenness and repentance and say by our actions, as well as our words, God, we want you. We don't care if you do anything or not. We're crawling up on the altar. Let your fire of cleansing fall, so we can finally see your face. Why would we go through all this? There are at least two reasons I can think of. First, the experience of seeing God's glory is life-changing. It is the most habit-forming experience a human being can have, and the only side effect is death to the flesh. The second reason is this. The true purpose of God's presence manifesting in our lives is evangelism. If we can carry a residue of God's glory back into our homes and businesses, if we can carry even a faint glow of His lingering presence into lukewarm churches, then we won't have to beg people to come to the Lord in repentance. They will run to the altar when His glory breaks their bondage, and they can't come any other way. No man comes to the Father any other way except through repentance and salvation through Jesus. Every other so-called way to salvation bears the mark of a thief and a robber. The Lord knows that we have tried to pave the way for people to come to God through painless, cheap grace and costless revival. But all we wound up with was bargain basement salvations that hardly lasted a week. Why? Because all we gave people was an emotional encounter with man, when what they really needed was a death encounter with the glory and presence of God Himself. From here on, our prayer should be, Father, we confess that we want to see change in our lives and in our church, so we can bring about change in our city. Give us such a heart and passion after you that we may begin to see your glory flow out of us to convict and save the lost. Release your presence through us as you did through Charles Finney, 
when he walked through factories and saw workers drop to their knees under the glory and cried out for forgiveness, although not one word had been spoken or preached. May the faintest shadow of your presence in our lives heal the sick and restore the lame we meet in the streets. Let your presence so saturate us that unsaved guests can't step into our homes or be around us with unrepentant hearts. May your glory bring conviction in their lives that leads to salvation, not because of the power of the words we say, but because of your presence and power in our hearts. Honestly, friend, I'm looking for the same kind of revival that they had in the New Hebrides when officials sent for Duncan Campbell, who conducted nightly revival services in that region. They told the evangelist, Would you please come to the police station? There are a whole score of people here, and we don't know what's wrong with them, but we think you might. This really happened. As the man walked with the officials through the village to the police station at four in the morning, because he had been in services all night, he said it was like a plague had come on the village. A godly plague. People were weeping and praying behind every haystack and every door. Men were kneeling on the street corners. Ladies and children in their nightgowns were huddled around each other in open doorways, weeping and crying. When the evangelist finally reached the police station, he found scores of people weeping and crying out to the police, What is wrong? They didn't even know enough about God to know it was Him. They just knew something was wrong and that they were guilty. The only thing they knew to do was to go to the police station and confess that something was wrong. What was wrong was that there was sin in their hearts, and the conviction of God had come upon them suddenly. It had filled the entire community, even outside the church building. When these people began to flood the police station with their confessions of wrongdoing, the police didn't have the answer. The evangelist stood on the steps of the police station early that morning and preached the simple gospel of repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ, and genuine revival came to that place. This is the kind of revival I'm talking about, the kind that will quickly overwhelm the resources and manpower of every church. Frankly, we would be totally unable to contain or manage such a harvest of souls in our pitiful present state, because we don't have enough fresh bread of His presence on our shelves for these hungry masses. It may bother some people that I say that, but I have a problem with our part-time, gone-fishing church mentality. We touched on this earlier in chapter 2, no bread in the house of bread. But it bears repeating until the situation changes. Why is it that on every corner in America's cities we have little convenience stores that stay open 24 hours a day just to meet the public's demand for their goods? Meanwhile, most of America's churches supposedly satisfy the nation's hunger for God while operating only two hours a week on Sunday morning. Why isn't the church staying open every night and day? Aren't we supposed to be offering the bread of life to the hungry? Something is terribly wrong, and I don't think it is America's hunger for God. They are hungry all right, but they're smart enough to tell the difference between the stale bread of yesterday's religious experience and the fresh bread of God's genuine presence. Once again, we must conclude that the reason the hungry aren't knocking on our doors 
is because the house of bread is empty. It is interesting to note that not one of the 50 largest churches in the world is in the United States. How can that be? Haven't we sent missionaries around the world for more than 200 years? The hungry need fresh bread in abundance, not stale crumbs in the carpet from last century's wedding rehearsal dinner. I have a friend who pastors a church of about 7,000 believers. His church is arguably the best cell-based model church in America. But he told me that he had recently attended a conference overseas, and what he discovered there brought tears to his eyes. He told me, Tommy, there's something that just really gripped me at that conference. He explained that the conference sponsored a workshop for pastors who pastored churches larger than 100,000. And then he said, I couldn't stand it. I just had to open the door and stick my head into that meeting to see if there was anybody there. The room had about 20 or 30 people in it, and it just gripped me that I couldn't go in there. Then with tears in his eyes, he told me, then it dawned on me, Tommy, nobody in that room was an American. This man has been fairly successful by American standards. He's managed to make a sizable dent in his city of about 400,000, but he wants to do more. He isn't a head counter or a number chaser who's only interested in competing with other pastors who brag about their Sunday morning attendance figures. He is a God chaser and a soul winner. His tears weren't tears of jealousy. They were tears of sorrow. If there's ever been a country ripe for revival, it is the United States. It is time for God's people to get desperately hungry after Him because the fires of revival must first ignite the church before its flames can spread to the streets. I am weary of trying to accomplish God's works with the hands of man. What we need for nationwide revival is one thing and one thing only. We need to have God show up. If you want your local high school classes to turn into prayer meetings, then you will need to see God show up. There's been enough blood of students flowing in the hallways. What we need is the blood of Christ flowing down the streets. I'm not talking about a theoretical or historical occurrence. There have been times when God's glory has been flowing in His churches so much that His people had to be careful in area restaurants, simply bowing their heads to pray over their meal. They look up to see waitresses and other customers all around just weeping uncontrollably and saying, What is it with you people? My wife was standing in line to pay for some purchases at a store during God's visitation in Houston when a lady tapped her on the shoulder. She turned around to see who it was to find a total stranger weeping unashamedly. This lady told my wife, I don't know where you've been, and I don't know what you've got, but my husband is a lawyer and I'm in the middle of a divorce. And she began to blurt out her other problems and finally said, What I'm really saying is I need God. My wife looked around and said, You mean right here? She said, Right here. My wife just had to ask again, Well, what about these people in line? Suddenly the lady turned to the woman standing in line behind her and said, Ma'am, is it okay if I pray with this lady right here? But that lady was also crying, and she said, Yes, and pray with me too. Supernatural things like that will happen to you too, but it only comes one way. It only comes when the priest and the ministers weep between the porch and the altar and cry out to Jesus Christ, spare the people. If you want the revival zone, you've got to live in the weeping zone. There is no shortcut to revival. 
are the coming of His presence. God's glory only comes when repentance and brokenness drive you to your knees because His presence requires purity. Only dead men see God's face. We cannot expect others to repent at that depth if you and I are not willing to continually walk in that level of repentance. My friend, the world is tired of hearing pompous churches preaching popular sermons from behind their elevated pulpits. What right do we have to tell everybody else to repent when there are such glaring problems in our own house? Hypocrisy has never been in style in God's church, but we've made it the main attraction in our version of church. What we need to do is come clean and confess, yes, we have some problems. Yes, I have some problems too. But I am repenting of my sin right now. Is there anybody here who wants to join me while I repent? I think we will all be surprised at the number of people who will start crawling out from the crevices of society when they see the church repenting. Once again, it all goes back to our most serious problem. We don't have the bread of His presence. Our churches are filled with career prodigals who love their father's things more than their father. We've come to the family dinner table not to ask for more of the father, but to beg and persuade him to give us all the things in his house that he promised are rightfully ours. We open the book and lick our lips and say, I want all the gifts. I want the best portion, the full blessing. I want all that belongs to me. Ironically, it was the father's blessing that actually financed the prodigal son's trip away from the father's face. And it was the son's new revelation of his poverty of heart that propelled him back into his father's arms. Sometimes we use the very blessings that God gives us to finance our journey away from the centrality of Christ. It's very important that we return back to ground zero, to the ultimate eternal goal of abiding with the father and intimate communion. Lord, put a hunger in our hearts for you, and not just for your things. We appreciate your boundless blessings, Father, but we're hungry for you, our blesser. Come show us the real purpose of your presence.